Everyone loves a good story. Whether on the page or on the screen, stories captivate us. They capture our attention, grab hold of our imaginations, and grip our emotions. As the viewer watches the story unfold, they're gripped by the emotional tension and left wondering, is there really any good left in Vader? How will the boy who lived defeat once and for all he who must not be named? How can the fellowship complete their mission after they have witnessed the demise of Gandalf in his battle against the Balrog? Why is it that whenever Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the heir of Isildur, appears on the page, I suddenly feel safe and full of hope? Everyone loves a good story. Good stories, particularly the ones that we read of in the scriptures, are one of the many gifts that the Lord has given to his people for our perseverance. Maybe you've never thought of stories as a tool for your faith to persevere unto the end. But as the Apostle Paul himself said, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. This morning, we begin an expositional study through the book of Esther. The story of Esther is a story of history centered around a Jewish woman living amongst exiles under a foreign empire. Young woman who, through the guiding hand of providence, rose to power as queen. This is a story about life and death as the Jewish people faced the threat of annihilation. This is a story about God's invisible hand of providence. Even in the darkest time in the lives of God's people, God's invisible hand was providentially orchestrating and arranging all of the apparently coincidental moments, ultimately for their good. While neither God nor his name are explicitly mentioned in the story of Esther, this story is ultimately about how the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is and always has been a promise-keeping God. So turn with me to Esther chapter 1. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, you can use the black Bibles in front of you. Uh, we'll be in page 483 in the Black Pew Bibles. The larger numbers are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. Esther chapter 1. Uh, we'll be looking at our first scene in Esther chapter 1, a queen's downfall. And the Word of God says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus... The Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones." Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. In this opening scene... We are introduced to the great Persian king, Ahasuerus. In the Greek, he was also known as uh, Xerxes. I'll be using those names interchangeably. 
Xerxes ruled over a vast empire, and in these opening verses, he has gathered everyone in positions of power and influence under his rule to attend his grand and luxurious feast, where he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. 180 days, these people partied. This was not just any ordinary, glamorous Friday evening. This feast lasted for six months, nonstop. As we read these verses, we as the readers of this story are meant to be awestruck at the extravagance of this soiree. The author of this story wants us to notice the riches and the treasure and the splendor that's all on display. The kinds of things that ordinary people like you and I would likely lock away for safekeeping were all put on display for the pleasure of all to enjoy. Anyone who was anyone was at this feast. The splendor, the extravagance, and arguably the wastefulness of all this was meant to impress everyone in attendance. Even the average Joes in the city of Susa, both great and small, were given a feast that lasted for seven days. So as studious readers of the story, we must ask this question. Why would the king throw these grand feasts? So King Xerxes was likely trying to rally support for his military campaign against the Greeks. Historians understand that Xerxes was uh, trying to uh, win the Greeks by uh, military combat and the history books recognize him as an ambitious politician. He was hungry for power, and his glamorous feasts were a calculated political maneuver. This wasn't just a party he wanted to throw because he was feeling particularly generous one random day. No, this was a calculated political maneuver. These were gifts with strings attached, and if you have ever received a gift with strings attached, then you know that that gift was not really a gift at all. Xerxes was aiming to put all of this on display in order to communicate that if everyone, both the powerful and the ordinary, would support his ambitions, they would be handsomely rewarded. Surely, if you sit on a couch of gold and silver, that this king has got something he can give to you. Now, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Meumen, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this... The king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So, if all of this opulence was not enough, we now get to witness the pinnacle of the king's glory. Not just a prized trophy he's locked away in a cabinet. The pinnacle of the king's glory is the beautiful Queen Vashti. At the king's command, she was to be brought before him in the royal court with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. She's a showstopper. She's stunning. She walks into the room and everyone's breath kind of gets taken away because she is stunningly gorgeous. Now again, what is King Xerxes doing? He is flexing his power. He's flexing his royal command. By having Queen Vashti, his most prized possession, appear in his court, the king was flaunting his most prized trophy. He's effectively communicating, look, all of you who are in attendance, you can have all your dreams come true if you pledge me your loyalty. But like any good plan, something goes terribly wrong. Verse 12, the queen refused the king's command to appear in his court. Now, you might be wondering, why would the queen refuse to attend? Maybe she was busily tending to her own feast for the women. Maybe she uh, didn't want to be flaunted as an object to be ogled at by a court full of drunk men. Who really wants to do that? The author doesn't say why uh, that she refused. Uh, but in this Persian empire, 
Your reason for refusing to obey the king was irrelevant. The king was to be obeyed without question. So when his own queen refused his command, thereby publicly embarrassing him, at this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. How would the king's own men obey his commands in the battlefield when he could not even get his own wife to obey in his own palace? As one commentator said, the mouse had roared and the glorious empire was shaken to its foundation by her refusal. Xerxes obviously couldn't just afford to overlook this act of public defiance. So what was to be done? Verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. So all of this to say, these are very important, powerful people who know the law really well. Verse 15. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. So this is a really interesting and unique situation. With the king in need of counsel, what is to be done with this situation? This was the perfect chance for a shrewd opportunist to take advantage of this situation. So what we see is Memucan cleverly argued that the queen's defiance was not only an affront to the king's authority, this was somehow an act of defiance against all the officials, which he himself is one. Right? And not only is this an affront to all the officials, it's an affront to all of the people of the king. So if this knowledge of this incident goes public, it would have an empire-spanning impact causing other women to behave as the queen did. So that's the threat. Other women are going to follow in step with the queen. Now, you need to pay really careful attention to what's happening in this story. Because as we'll see later in this story, King Xerxes was surrounded by manipulative and self-serving officials. Memucan could have been manipulating the situation to depose Queen Vashti. He could use this crisis to his own advantage to further bolster his position and influence with the king. Historians note that Xerxes' own father, Darius, would pick new wives from the noble families of Persia. So maybe Memucan was orchestrating this crisis situation to depose the queen and then maybe King Xerxes would find a new wife, maybe from Memukin's own family, which would then do what? It would bolster his position. It would give him more influence. He would be closer to the king. But whatever the reason might be for Memukin to give this uh, counsel, what should have been an isolated incident suddenly escalated into a crisis that apparently threatened the entire empire. Now, Memukin goes on. Verse 19, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, 
that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is a fascinating situation here. So this Persian empire is this secular metropolitan empire, 127 provinces. There was probably more than one language being spoken. So what is to happen here? The queen's fate would be determined by a royal decree, and when you read this passage, there's a sense of humor and irony in the counsel that's given. So rather than keeping this humiliating episode quiet, Memucan suggested that Xerxes proclaim a decree publicly for all to hear that all women will give honor to their husbands. Now, King Xerxes, he listens to the counsel that's given, but it doesn't seem like he's thought this through very carefully. Because by accepting his advice, the king ends up publicizing his embarrassing situation by ordering the entire empire what he himself could not do in his palace, that every man be master in his own household. Have you ever been in a situation, maybe you're at dinner with some friends and uh, the, the people sitting across from you, they, they, they get into a little bit of a marital tiff. It's kind of awkward. You, know, you just feel the air being sucked out of the room and you're kind of stuck. Bill hasn't come yet and your steak's getting kind of cold and like, they're not even reading the room very well. So here's this entire court full of drunk men who are drinking and feeling merry and they watch a tiff happen. So what is to be done? So this royal decree goes out, and as for Queen Vashti, we don't know where she is here. Right? She might be on another side of the palace, but she has not appeared before the king. As for Vashti, this royal decree would strip her of her position and bar her from ever coming into the presence of the king. And her royal position would then be given to another who is better than she. Now, wives... Let me talk to you for one second. You might be feeling a little uh, as if the heat just got turned on here when, I, when, when I'm saying wives are called to respect their husbands. Right? Now, all we're doing is we're just pulling out what the text is saying. This is what the Persian king wanted done in his empire. No one had a choice in this. Right? So in Esther chapter 1, verses 13 to 22, because the king was humiliated, respect was demanded from the Persian wives Persian wives by the order of royal decree. Now, I'm going to speak to everybody here, not just the wives. There is another place in Scripture that speaks of wives respecting their husbands. You might already be familiar with this. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. I'm not going to read it. You, you don't have to turn there, but maybe you can reflect on this passage later on today or this week. But in Ephesians chapter 5, what we see is that respect is to be the response of a Christian wife towards her husband. Not because he demands it out of a sense of entitlement or humiliation, but because the husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When a husband has to command his wife to respect him, then whatever respect is rendered, loses its meaning. Those who can gain respect and obedience only by holding enough power to command it live with the constant anxiety of losing it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you see here in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, do you see here someone who is worthy of respect? I'm not talking about the husband. I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Husbands, consider the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not crave nor demand respect, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, our Lord is a great king. He is worthy of respect. 
And he has made all people in his holy, respected image that we might know him and love him and respect him. But we have all sinned and rebelled against him. Yet our king did not seek counsel to replace us because of our defiance. Rather, God became a man in Jesus Christ to become one of us. Truly God and truly man, yet without sin, Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience. The life that you and I could not live because of our sin. And by laying down his own life for his rebellious subjects, Jesus died the death that you and I deserved to die. And unlike the great earthly kings who died in pursuit of their own glory and power, our great heavenly king rose from the grave and he now, today, presently, sits on his throne, sovereignly reigning and ruling the universe with no threat of him ever being manipulated by self-seeking sycophants. Jesus' kingly leadership is never motivated by petty personal fears and anxieties. Rather, our great king exercised his kingly authority to lay his life down for his bride. Christians owe all our allegiance to Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Is this not the kind of king who deserves your ultimate loyalty and allegiance? If this kind of news is brand new to you, maybe you've never heard of the gospel of Jesus. There are a lot of people in this room right now who would be happy to talk to you about who Jesus is and what kind of king he is and what kind of authority this sovereign king exercises ruling his universe now. I would be happy to speak to you more about this. I'll be right in the back of the room there at the end of the service. But before we get to that, we come to our second scene, a queen's rise. Look with me in chapter 2. So after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So, the search for Vashti's replacement would begin in the form of a beauty competition. I have sought to be mindful of children in the room, and so I'm going to stick very strictly to my manuscript this morning. There were only three virtues that were deemed crucial in this competition to find a better replacement for uh, our lonely king. She had to be young, she had to be unmarried, and she had to be extraordinarily attractive. As one commentator said, the king wished to add to his collection of living dolls. Those chosen would live in a secluded splendor for the rest of their lives, even if they were only rarely taken out and played with. In this empire, everyone, male or female, was at the disposal of the king's personal whims. But in the midst of this all-consuming empire, two relatively insignificant characters appear on the scene. Look at verse 5 with me. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with uh, Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, 
that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother had died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, speaking of Haggai, the keeper of the harem. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women in the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So here in this passage, we are now introduced to Mordecai, who lived in the citadel. So this little detail means that he actually held an official role within the empire. We also learn that Mordecai was a descendant of Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. So you might be wondering, what are all these details here for? Why do they matter? These are important details. It's just not filler for the author to put on the page. They're important details because they tell us that Mordecai was actually related to King Saul. So Kish was King Saul's father. And this little connection that might seem insignificant actually becomes really significant later on in the story. So not only are we introduced to Mordecai, we're also introduced to a young Hebrew woman who lived with him. In the Hebrew, she was called Hadassah, but the empire knew her by her Persian name, Esther. We learned that she was orphaned, she was raised by her cousin, and she was stunningly gorgeous. And like all those in exile, Esther had to live in two worlds, and there would come a day when she would have to decide which of these two worlds would define her. So, what is happening here when we meet these two characters? The king's officials were searching for someone who, not just someone, but some ones, who was in the Hebrew good to look at. And the author makes it a point in the story to tell us that Esther was actually more than qualified. Because when you look at the Hebrew language, the Hebrew tells us that Esther was both fair of form and good to look at. So young Esther is doubly blessed. Right? She is, in a sense, more than what the king has asked for. And just as the Jews were carried into exile, Esther is taken into the king's harem. We're not told how she felt about this situation. We're not told what she thought about what was happening here. All we're told is she complied, which is an interesting uh, uh, contrast between her and Vashti, who did not comply with the king's command. Just like the rest of her people, Esther was at the mercy of a ruthless pagan king. But in verse 10, what we see here is that Mordecai commands Esther to conceal her Jewish identity. She is to hide her religious convictions and her ethnic background. Unlike Vashti, Esther was perfectly compliant. We're not told here what Mordecai's motives were. Maybe he feared for her safety. She is being taken into a very unsavory, uh, being put into a very unsavory situation. She's being put into a harem where she is going to be used for her body. Or maybe Mordecai thought that her chances of success in this process would be diminished if her Jewish identity was revealed. One thing that we have to keep in mind here is that the Jews under this reign of Xerxes in this Persian empire, they were an ethnic and religious minority. They were not the ethnic majority of the Persian empire. They had very little power and influence. But Xerxes' only criteria for a better queen was her sexual performance and obedience before his court. He apparently had no concern for her, uh, whatever her ethnic identity might be or religious convictions. 
Now the story goes on in verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So do you see here how the power is being exercised in the Persian Empire? This is a brutal act of power that is typical in Xerxes' reign. Power was to be used to satisfy one's own sense of pleasure, to satisfy one's own lust. Power would not be used to serve others for their flourishing or for their good. Unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned again, she was not to be brought before his presence. This careful beautification process that we see, this was not for the benefit of the young women. They were not applying retinol in order to make sure that their face looked firmer for themselves. They were being beautified for the purposes of the king's own pleasure. He was, in effect, test-driving each young woman for his own sexual satisfaction. And after trying each one, he would crown his chosen winner. When we read passages like this, when we see power being used to satisfy one's own lust and one's own craving, we, we ought to say, something doesn't smell right here. This is not the right use of power. Xerxes saw his wives and women in general simply as disposable objects that could be replaced once a superior option was available. There's something gross about this. Now, verse 15, the story goes on. Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. There, there's something that, uh, there's an important detail here. Esther wins the favor of all who see her. And this subtle sub-theme of sight is going to run through the story of Esther. Everyone who sees her, she wins favor with. The very beginning of the story begins with details for vision. We are to see the opulence and the splendor and the extravagance, and we are to be impressed with it. And so, she wins the favor of all who see her, particularly with the eyes of the king. She was carefully prepared for a sensual night with a Gentile man to whom she was not married. And remember, this is a Jewish girl. And while the author does not explain what Esther felt about her situation, the author does make it clear that, the Esther, that Esther won the king's favor. She pleased the king better than any of the other women of the harem. And finally, there is now a winner in the king's contest. Xerxes set the royal crown, which once sat on the head of Vashti, he now set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. You start to notice this contrast between Vashti and Esther. And finally, the crown is now set on the new queen's head. Now, Esther's rise to power poses some really difficult questions. She goes from a young Jewish orphan in the midst of a uh, secular Persian empire, to now queen. 
That's, that's quite a, I, I, what the kids, I believe, say, glow up. But there's some really difficult questions that are posed here. She willingly downplayed her Jewish identity. That doesn't really sound very faithful. Vashti demonstrated at a great cost that one could refuse the king, yet Esther compliantly joined the king's harem and engaged in a sexual relationship with a Gentile man to whom she was not married. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, strictly prohibited Jews to intermarry with Gentiles. Yet, Esther married the Gentile Xerxes at a time when Jews marrying Gentiles was a serious issue among the Jews who had returned from exile to Jerusalem. You can see more of that in uh, Ezra chapters 9 and 10. Some difficult issues going on here. What are we to think about these things? The author doesn't tell us anything about what Esther thought about her marriage to Xerxes. Maybe Esther thought this was the greatest thing that could ever happen to her. Or maybe she wondered, why would God allow such a horrible thing to happen to me? While the author remains silent on Esther's morality and these ethical implications, when we as readers of this story read this story, we cannot come to simple answers to her difficult situation. You likely probably know life is not always neat and tidy. There are situations that arise that require significant thought, great care, much wisdom. Life is not always easy. Unlike Joseph's rise to power in Egypt, which you can read in Genesis chapters 37 to 50, he demonstrated consistent obedience to God's law. He went even so far as to refuse the sexual advances of Potiphar's wife, and as a result, he spent many years in prison, many harsh years. But Esther's rise to power as queen, this is a morally ambiguous situation. What are we to do with it? What is she to do with it? While we are not the point of this story, and while this story does not directly transfer over to our life situations, should we ever find ourselves in the kind of situation like Esther, where right and wrong are not as clearly defined as we would hope, where every choice we have is a troubling mixture both of good and bad, our aim should be twofold. Honor God and trust God. Honor God and trust God. He knows the end of the story from its beginning, so we can entrust ourselves to him in every situation. Now, we come to a third scene. One queen has been deposed. A new queen has risen. And in our third scene, a plot discovered. Verse, verses 19 to 23. Now, when the virgins were gathered together for the second time... Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, in this third scene, Mordecai just happens to be at the right place at the right time when he happens to overhear two of the king's own eunuchs plotting to kill the king. And Mordecai can also do something about it since it just so happens that he has a connection with the one person with the most influence on the king, Queen Esther. Mordecai passes this life-saving information to the king through Queen Esther, who just happens to be careful to make sure that Mordecai gets the credit for this. Do you see a theme here? Do you see a pattern? All the dominoes are just falling right into place. Right? Now, Mordecai was to receive credit for this wonderful act. The king's life was saved. Interestingly enough, King Xerxes was assassinated in his own bedroom for messing around with the wives of his military captains. 
So he seems to be flirting with this sense of, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And ultimately, while this episode sees him being saved, his sin ultimately catches him. He's ultimately uh, assassinated. Now, Mordecai receives the credit for having saved King Xerxes' life. And in an empire where acts of loyalty were generally rewarded to those who served the throne well, what we see here now is the empire was now, in a sense, indebted to Mordecai the Jew. And just as Mordecai said, the men were guilty of conspiring against the king. They were executed. The king's life was saved. Mordecai should have been rewarded. But it just so happened that Mordecai's good deed would go unrewarded. This chapter in the story ends without the fanfare and celebration like when the story first began. Mordecai likely spent weeks, if not months, if not years, wondering, where is my reward? Why have I not been given what I am due? I should have been rewarded with royal recognition, but I have not received it. Why? Mordecai likely asked a similar question that you and I ask on a regular basis. Why is this happening to me? How could this happen? I'm not deserving of this. I've been wronged. I deserve the good, not this bad. Where is my good news? Why would God let this happen to me? Friends, how often do we ask ourselves in the midst of life's difficult trials and challenges, God, why are you letting this happen? That's a very human question to ask. We are left asking the question in this story, where is God in the midst of life's most difficult and complex situations? Where is God? If we are not careful, if we are not looking to God as a sovereign king, we might wonder, God is around when things are good. God is absent when things go bad. God will only give me what is good. Surely he will never give me what is bad. Surely he will never give me this challenge. God can't bring about this trial or this challenge or this difficulty. Friends, if that's how you view God, that version of God will grossly disappoint you. The true God may end up disappointing you if you believe that he is only sovereign and he is only ruling in your favor when things are going well. 2022 may have been a year for you where things just didn't go according to plan. In, uh, in 2021, uh, I buried my father, whom I had not seen in close to a decade. In 2022, I buried my grandfather. Life didn't go as I thought. Where was God? You might be wondering the same question right now. In the moment you are sitting, in the moment that you are facing the great difficulty, and you might be saying, well, Pastor Chris, you know, this is great that you're telling me about the story of this really good-looking woman from a long time ago, but you don't know the situation that I'm in. You're probably right. I don't know the situation that you might be in. And you might be asking this question in your trial of difficulty. Where is God in this? Why has he left me? Dear saint, if you are in Christ, then he is with you always. Always. Even now. Even in that great moment of darkness and difficulty when you thought that the darkness would not lift, he was with you. Even when you were being led through the valley of the shadow of death, you were indeed being led through that valley. He never once let you go. He never once weakened his grip on you while your weak, uh, weak grip on him was growing looser. The Lord never looked at the trial and the difficulty that you faced as, oh, whoa, didn't see that one coming. No. If you are in Christ, he is with you always. He is what the Lord Jesus said, the good shepherd. 
A shepherd that does not slumber or sleep. A shepherd that does not grow weary or tired. A shepherd that does not get agitated or irritated when his sheep just don't get it right the first, second, third, or tenth time. He is a good shepherd who is with you. In Esther's story, we are meant to see this good shepherd. We are meant to see God's sovereign yet invisible hand preserving his people, showing that everything is under control, his control, even when it seems as if he's nowhere to be found. Friends, do you feel as if your life is just completely out of control? Maybe the lives of your children are completely out of control. Maybe you have found yourself in a situation where you just have wondered, what has happened? How did I get here? Where is God in all this? Friends, even when things seem completely out of control and God is nowhere to be found, he is there. And that's the main point. Even when the Lord's hand cannot be seen and he is seemingly nowhere to be found, The Lord is sovereignly arranging all things for the good of his people. Even when his hand is invisible, God is nonetheless at work accomplishing his own ends. Throughout Esther's story, and we've only covered two of ten chapters, but throughout this story, we are meant to see contrasts between the kingdom of Xerxes and the kingdom of God. Consider the fact that the Lord God is a great king whose decrees cannot be challenged or repealed. His sovereignty governs all things, both great and small. Consider the fact that God must be obeyed or we will certainly suffer the consequences. The wages of sin is death. Yet his law is beneficial for men and women, unlike the drunken meanderings of a man at the mercy of his shrewd counselors. Unlike Xerxes, the Lord does not use his subjects to satisfy his cravings as if we are just disposable commodities. Rather, he graciously invites us into a loving relationship with himself. Do you view yourself as scum? Do you view yourself with self-hatred? If you are in Christ and you view yourself that way, you are the only one because the Lord does not view you that way. The Lord views you as one who has been united to his perfect son, whose righteousness has imputed to you, and he now calls you a beloved saint. You are not a disposable commodity. Consider, finally, that the Lord, too, has prepared a banquet for his people on the last day. But when God summons his bride, the church, he does so not to expose her to shame, but to lavish the joy of his presence and grace upon her forever. One great contrast that we'll see is Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. Jesus himself exposes a contrast here. In Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45, we read, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Does that sound familiar? Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Verse 45, maybe this year you commit this verse to memory. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see how our King Jesus exercises his kingly authority? Not to satisfy his own cravings, but he gives his life as a ransom for many. I'll close with these words by the Reformed author Ian Dugan. I have not been able to get these words out of my mind, and so my prayer, and I've been working on this sermon for weeks, this sermon might be Totally unhelpful, but I believe Dugan's words will be helpful, and I hope that it will serve you as it has served me. He said, Christ is no despot in the mold of Ahasuerus, eager to use us and dispose of us like so many discarded toys. Such a man would not be worthy of our eager submission. But our husband is Jesus Christ, who has loved his bride, the church, with an everlasting love. For our sake, he took on a form utterly without beauty, was despised and rejected by those he came to serve, was cut off from the land of the living. In contrast to Esther's 12-month-long course of beauty treatments, 
Our divine husband undertook a 33-year pilgrimage, stripped of his eternal radiance. No comfortable beds and fattening food for him. Nowhere to lay his head and nothing to call his own. His pain was the prerequisite for our beauty. This self-sacrifice is what gives him the right to call us to follow him through the worst of trials. Does the course he has laid out seem unbearably painful? Whatever path he leads us down is a path he himself has trodden ahead of us. And he promises to walk it alongside us. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, his presence will remain with us. And we have the assurance that he is already familiar with the twists and turns of that road. What motivated Jesus in his pursuit of us? Certainly not our radiant beauty and sweet spirit. We have all gone astray like rebellious sheep, piling up the mound of transgressions and iniquities that he would have to pay for. Nevertheless, he loved us and gave himself for us. He has prepared a glorious banquet for our honor, a crown of splendor to beautify us in the sight of everyone and a place of honor by his side. What wondrous love is this? Let's pray. Father, we come before your presence, not by anything that we have done or accomplished, not because we have made ourselves more beautiful and more attractive in your sight. Father, we have come as those desperate for your mercy. We have come needing righteousness, and we have come understanding that we cannot produce any of this righteousness in ourselves. Father, we have come before you now only in the righteousness of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for his church, who gave his life with an everlasting love. Father, we look to him. We find in him all of our hope. We find in him our righteousness. We find in him peace with you. And it is only in Jesus Christ, Lord God, that we can find any peace here on this earth. We look to him who sacrificed his life, who leads us even now through the valley of the shadow of death, and who will bring us before him in splendor and glory, who will not expose us to shame, but will lavish us with joy and love. Lord, until that day, we look to him in faith, and we trust that in all of life's twists and turns and unknowns and the bumps in the road and the obstacles that we will face, we will not do so alone. We will do so because you have led us. You are leading us and you will be with us even as you are now. And so, Father, we commit this time to you. We ask and pray that you would bless your word and that through this story of Esther, that we would see how you have providentially orchestrated and arranged all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose, so that according to your purposes, we would be conformed into the image of Jesus. And so it is to him we look to now. It is to, in his name that we pray. It is for his glory that we gather, and it is for your honor, Lord, that we commit this time to you. We pray all this, Lord, now in Jesus' name. Amen.